Welcome, my friends and seekers, to the Gospels Inc. podcast, where ink meets inspiration and stories of faith come to life. I'm your host, David Green, and while I'm not a preacher, I'm here to guide you on a refreshing journey through the pages of hope and salvation. Each week, we delve into different chapters of the Bible, unpacking the wisdom, uncovering the truths, and exploring the life-changing message within. Together, we will navigate the rich mosaic of God's Word, allowing it to illuminate your past, enrich your spirits, and deepen our understanding of faith and life. Imagine navigating the complexities of life the Bible as your compass, painting each day with strokes of grace, love, and truth. Here at Gospel Inc., that's not just a dream, it's our shared journey. So why wait? Embark on this aligning adventure with us. Let your spirit be stirred and your heart be filled with the warmth of the ultimate truth. Stay tuned and stay blessed as we unfold vibrant hues of the gospel, only here in Gospel Inc. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is David Green, and I'm your host here at Gospel Inc. Uh, This week, we're going to dive into Revelations chapter 2, and it is a chapter full of symbolic language. Uh, Even in the first sentence, right, he says, To the angel of the church of Ephesians, right. I pause there because um, it sounds like he's writing a letter to an angel, which is not super common for us humans to do. Well, so we, let's unpack this with what the scholars say, right? First, some scholars say it's an, a literal angelic being. Some scholars propose that the term angel is to be taken literally. They suggest that each church has a guardian angel that represents the church before God. In this view, the letters are addressed to these celestial beings as representation, right? Or as representatives of the respective congregations. Uh, two, it could just be symbolic. Other views the angel as a symbol of the prevailing spirit or attitude of the church. In this sense, the angel embodies the collective character, strengths, and weaknesses of the church congregants. Uh, Number three, right, is the church community. Another interpretation is that the angel metaphorically stands for the entire church community. This makes this letter a direct message to the members of the Ephesian church, guiding them in their spiritual journey. Number four is prophetic figure, right? The angel could also be seen as a prophetic figure within the church, one is supposed to receive the revelation and share it with the congregants. This figure could be an actual prophet or simply an individual gifted with spiritual insight and responsibility to guide the church. And finally, it could just be clergy or leadership. As we mentioned, the term angel could be metaphorically referring to the human leadership of the church, maybe pastors or elders who are tasked with shepherding the congregants. This makes this message a directive for the church's leadership, which is then to be communicated to the body or the members. In any case, the term angel used here emphasizes the divine concern and guidance for each church and underscores the seriousness and spiritual nature of the message being delivered. Uh, The choice of the term also elevates the message beyond mere human wisdom or advice, rooting it firmly in divine revelation and authority. Next, John writes, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, this part is an introduction of Jesus, who is the speaker of the words. The seven stars and lampstands represent the seven churches to which John is writing. Jesus is holding the seven stars in his hand to show his ultimate authority over the churches, and he is walking amongst the lampstands, signifying his presence and watchfulness within the church. As we discussed last week, he is bringing light to darkness, right? These churches are struggling, and he's trying to bring goodness to them. He's trying to make them turn away from their sins. As we move along to verses 2 and 3, he writes, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and I have found them to be false. 
you have per- persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That sounds pretty good, right? Jesus is writing this letter to us. I'm feeling pretty good so far. Now, in these verses, Jesus is recognizing their tireless efforts in maintaining purity and holiness and their commitment to righteousness by rejecting, rejecting wickedness. They have discerned and rejected the false apostles, thereby protecting their community from the deception and falsehood uh, that these individuals would bring. Now, we're talking a lot about false apostles, right? So what is a false apostle? Now, false apostles are individuals who deceitfully present themselves as true messengers of Christ, often using religious language and mimicry to convince others of their alleged divine calling and authority. Their motivations range from financial gain, increased status, or power, exploiting the faith of others for their benefit. Their teachings, filled with heresies and misleading doctrines, deviate from the true message of the gospel, leading people astray. The Bible, in passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13-15, through 15, says, For such people are false prophets, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masqueraded as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. And here in Revelations 2, uh, warns against such individuals, warning believers uh, to remain vigilant and discerning. So let's talk about discerning the false apostles, right? We know, we know some of the badness that they bring and how they can lead you astray, but how can we discern them, right? So let's, we, one of the main things is to evaluate their character and behavior. Now, true apostles will exhibit the fruit of the Spirit and lead people towards righteousness, truth, and love, as stated in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Next, we need to examine their teachings. True apostles' teachings will align with the Bible, upholding central Christian doctrines, as found in Acts 17.11. Lastly, we need to analyze their motives and actions. True apostles demonstrate humility selflessness, and genuine concern for others' spiritual welfare. So that begs the question, right? What is a false apostle? I'm trying to learn how to discern them, but I got to figure out, I got to figure out how to identify them. Well, first, false apostles refer to individuals who falsely claim to be apostles, sent ones or special messengers of Christ, but in reality are not. They pretend to have a divine calling and authority, often seeking to lead people astray from the true teachings of Jesus and the apostles. The term can be found in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, warning the early Christian communities about such deceitful workers. So, let's talk about their character. False apostles often use deception to disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. They might mimic religious language, practices, and behaviors to convince others of their supposed divine calling and authority. Number two, they'll have false teachings, right? False apostles uh, have fake teachings that are contrary to the message of Jesus and the authentic apostles. They introduce hearsays and misleading doctrines that can lead people away from the truth of the gospel self-gain, right? Often apostles are motivated by personal gain, whether it be financial, social status, or power. They exploit the faith of others to benefit themselves, rather than seeking the welfare and spiritual growth of believers. And finally, immorality. False apostles may also exhibit moral behaviors, contrary to ethical and moral standards upheld by true followers of Christ. What this is telling you is that you need to open your Bible and read it. You need to understand true Christian doctrine. You need to understand what Jesus wants for your life. 
because that's how we're going to discern them. We've got to be educated in order to discern them. Now, verse 4, there comes the, the tricky part where the Ephesians are not going to like to hear it, but it's God's rebuke. He says, yet I hold this against you. Oh, take a deep breath. If God's writing that to you, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Now, despite their good deeds at this church, Jesus rebukes the Ephesians for losing their first love, which could mean their passion and severe or sincere devotion to God and others. So let's examine this a little further. Initial devotion and passion. When individuals first come to faith, there is often a notable zeal, affection, and passion for God and a genuine love for others. This first love encapsulates a selfless and wholehearted commitment to devotion to God and the community of believers. So Ephesians had likely exhibited this vibrant and wavering love initially, which is now observed to have this, this uh, diminished. So the shift, right? So over time, it's possible for the early enthusiasm and fervor to wane. The believers in Ephesians are rebuked for allowing this to occur. While maintaining their righteous deeds and discernment, their fundamental love, the core of their Christian walk has been neglected or forsaken. This could manifest in various ways, such as mechanical religious practices, diminished care for others, or a lack of deep personal relationship with God. So Jesus is rebuking them in order to have them the call to return, right? Jesus' words are a call or to introspection and revival. The Ephesians believes, uh, believers are encouraged to remember their original love and fervor, consider how they have deviated, and purposely revive their affection and commitment to God and others. The reminder underscores the essentiality of love and Christian faith, transitioning rituals, deeds, and discernment. So let's talk about application, right? The message to the Ephesian church is relevant for all believers. It is a reminder to continuously assess and nurture our love for God and others. While good deeds, moral integrity, and discernment are vital, they should not supersede the fundamental love and devotion to God and compassion for love of others. It calls to maintain this love as a central driving force in our walk of faith, ensuring that it permeates every aspect of our lives, keeping our relationship with God vibrant and our connection with those uh, empathetic and caring for others. And in essence, the Ephesians church's scenario is a beckoning for all believers to continually rekindle and prioritize their first love, ensuring that it remains fervent and central amidst all the commendable endeavors and attributes. All right, so let's move on to verse 5. He says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Jesus encouraged them to reflect on their condition, repent, and return to the works and love they had at the beginning of their Christian journey. Verse 6, but you have this in your favor. Whew. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Again, Jesus commends the church for hating the practices of the Nicolaitans, a sect that allegedly practiced immorality and adultery. More specifically, the Nicolaitans were a heretical sect that emerged in the early Christian church. Their exact beliefs and practices are not you know, exhaustively detailed in the Bible, but their teachings were contrary to the core tenets of the Christian faith. If we talk about their alleged practices, one is called immorality. The Nicolaitans are believed to have endorsed and practiced immoral behavior. This could have encompassed a range of unethical and sinful activities that were in direct violation of the ethical standards and moral teachings outlined in Christian doctrine. And number two, adultery. Additionally, the Nicolaitans might have been engaged in idle practice. 
This implies the worship or veneration of idols, a practice that is fundamentally opposed to the Christian belief in the worship of the one true God. Idols could also refer to an undue attachment or devotion to other entities, practices, and objects, effectively placing them above God. Do you love money? Do you place that above God? That could be adultery. From a theological position, right, the Nicolaitans possibly advocated for a what some call it syncretesis, I think as I'm pronouncing that right, theology, attempting to integrate non-Christian beliefs, possibly from surrounding pagan cultures, with Christian doctrine. This uh, would lead to a distortion of Christian teachings, creating a blend that would be more palatable to non-believers, but would theologically be incorrect and spiritually harmful. When we talk about Jesus' condemnation and the message to the Ephesian church, Jesus commends the believers for their disdain of the practices of the Nicolaitans. So condemnation underscores a few critical aspects. Now, what is it saying? It's the importance of doctoral purity. The Ephesian believers' rejection of the Nicolaitan practices highlights the significance of maintaining doctrinal purity and ethical integrity within the Christian community. Number two, rejection of immoral, immoral practice in adultery, right? This uh, stance against the Nicolaitans' alleged immoral and idol practices is not aligned with Jesus' teachings and God's commandments, reinforcing the importance of holiness, righteousness, and exclusive devotion to God. Number three, affirmation of our righteous stand. Jesus' condemnation serves as an affirmation and encouragement for the physician's church and all believers continue to, uh, standing against false teachings and practices that undermine the true Christian faith. The reference to the Nicolaitans in this message to the Ephesian church serves as a potent reminder for all believers to remain vigilant against teachings and practices that contradict biblical truths and principles. It highlights the necessity of holding fast to authentic Christian doctrine and moral standards, rejecting any form of immorality, adultery, um, theology, compromise. The stance is not just commendable, but it is also in harmony with the heart and will allow Jesus uh, will and will of Jesus for his followers, ensuring the preservation of the purity, integrity, vitality of their faith and witness. Now moving on to verse seven, he writes, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is an invitation to all believers to listen and heed the message. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, finally, Jesus promises eternal life, symbolized by the right to eat from the tree of life, to those who overcome and remain faithful. In essence, the letter to the church in Ephesians emphasizes the importance of maintaining their first love, devotion, and love for God and others, along with their good works, discernment, hatred for false teachings. Despite the hardships and challenges this church faced, they are encouraged to remain faithful with the promise of eternal life as their reward. All right, so that ends Ephesians, right? Next, we're going to write a letter to the church of Smyrna. It's in verse 9. He goes, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Here, Jesus acknowledges the physical suffering or afflictions and material deprivation, poverty, the Christians in Smyrna are experiencing. They're like likely facing societal, economic, and possibly political oppression due to their faith. They might be marginalized, facing physical harm and economic hardship, which is acknowledged by Jesus as he says he knows their afflictions and poverty. But he ends that with saying, yet you are rich. 
Despite their material poverty, Jesus affirms that Christians in Smyrna are rich. This is a significant statement that turns societal values upside down. Now, in this context, richness does not refer to material wealth. Jesus is referring to the spiritual wealth, affirming that despite their material poverty and afflictions, the Christians in Smyrna are rich in faith, divine in grace, and eternal promise. Their spiritual wealth is far more significant and enduring than material wealth, and it is recognized and valued by Jesus. Now, as we try to understand this deeper, right? This statement is a reassurance and an affirmation from Jesus to the persecuted Christians in Smyrna. He assures them that he sees and understands their suffering and material deprivation. He acknowledges their true wealth, their spiritual witness, uh, which cannot be diminished by worldly poverty or afflictions. Despite this material lack uh, and the hardships they are facing, their spiritual abundance, their rich faith, resilience, and eternal life promised to them is acknowledged and affirmed by Jesus. In essence, right, this message underscores the Christian teaching that spiritual wealth is way more valuable than material wealth, and it provides encouragement and affirmation to those facing worldly poverty and persecution, highlighting their individual spirit of richness in the eyes of God. Next, he writes, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. Here, Jesus acknowledges his awareness of the false and damaging accusations being made against the Christians in Smyrna. These accusations are coming from individuals who identify themselves as Jews. However, their actions, which include slander against the Christian community, are not in alignment with Jewish teachings that emphasize truth, justice, and love for neighbors. Therefore, Jesus is highlighting the discrepancy between their self-identification as Jews and their un-Jewish actions of slander. He, goes, he finishes that phrase by saying, but are a synagogue of Satan. By referring to these individuals or groups as a synagogue for Satan, Jesus is using strong language to express his condemnation of their actions. The term synagogue of Satan does not refer to a literal synagogue, but a symbolic language used to represent falsehood, deception, and opposition to God's truth. In essence, Jesus is saying that these individuals, despite claiming to belong to God, uh, God's chosen people, the Jews, are acting in ways that align them with evil, represented by Satan rather than by God. So let's, let's think about this, right? This verse is highlighting a specific challenge faced by the early Christians community in Smyrna, dealing with false accusations and slanders from those who should uh, have been at, uh, in their religious congregation. The phrase underscores the seriousness of deception and falsehood perpetrated by these individuals as their actions are contrary to the values and teachings of Judaism. And obviously Christianity is kind of what we're talking about here, therefore aligning them with opposition to God's truth and purpose. It's also important to understand that this language is symbolic and situational. It is addressing a specific issue faced by the Christian community in Smyrna. It does not make a general statement about all Jews. It is focused on those who are engaging in slander and falsehood, causing harm to the early Christians while not adhering to the authentic teachings and values of Judaism, or in this case, Christianity. In essence, Jesus is offering reassurance to the Christians in Smyrna that he knows and understands the specific challenge and falsehoods they are facing, and he condemns those who are perpetrating slander and deception against them. Now, verse 10 addresses the Christian community of Smyrna, facing or maybe about to face persecution for their beliefs. The verse acts as a message of hope, reassurance, and guidance for those in turmoil, assuring them of the Lord's awareness and promise of divine reward. He says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I mean, Jesus starts by addressing the emotional state of believers. He acknowledges the human fear of suffering and encourages Christians in Smyrna to not let fear overwhelm them. 
Now, this command to not fear despite impending suffering is significant. It reflects the biblical theme of trusting in God even in the face of adversity. Encouragement aims to strengthen the believer's resolve, reminding them of God's presence and oversight. Next, he says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. This means that Jesus forewarns the believers about the trials they will face, including imprisonment and persecution. The reference to 10 days is symbolic, potentially uh, indicating a period of time that is limited, right? That how long this test is going to occur. The specific mention of the trials period duration, even if symbolic, provides a sense of hope. It conveys the message that no matter how severe the persecution, it will not last forever. The devil will represent the forces of evil that causes suffering for the believers. Next, he says, be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Jesus urges the believers to hold on to their faith steadfastly, even if it leads to death. He assures them of the reward of their faithfulness, which is eternal life, referred to here as the victor's crown. This promise highlights the Christian belief in eternal life and victory over death through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It underscores the imperishable reward awaiting those who remain unwavering in their faith despite facing the ultimate sacrifice of their lives. Now, let's talk about the emphasis on fearlessness, right? Jesus emphasizes the importance of fearlessness in the face of adversity. He acknowledges the real and intimidating trials the believers are about to face, but encourages them to stand firm. By providing a detailed forewarning of the trials, including imprisonment and persecution, Jesus equips the believers with the knowledge of what to expect, thus preparing them mentally and spiritually for the challenges that lay ahead. And end it as he ends that, right? Like, it's bad things are going to happen, but we're going to take care of you and you have a promised reward. The assurance of the victor's crown serves as a powerful motivation for the believers to remain faithful. This reward, or eternal life, signifies the ultimate victory over the temporal suffering and death that they will or may experience. In essence, verse 10 from Revelations 2 is a profound message of encouragement, forewarning, and assurance from Jesus to the believers in Smyrna. It strengthens their resolve, prepares them for impending trials, and reminds them of the eternal reward waiting for them for their steadfast faith. Next, John writes a letter to the church of Pergamum. Jesus is addressing the Christians living in a city known for its pagan practices and significant opposition to Christianity. The city is described uh, as a place where Satan dwells, is symbolizing the spiritual adversity faced by the Christian community there. So let's break it down, right? I know where you live. I like that Jesus knows where I live. That's important. Jesus starts by expressing his awareness of the believer's situation and location. The phrase is not just uh, geographical. It symbolizes Jesus' intimate knowledge of their circumstances, challenges, and the spiritual climate they are in. You know you're not alone. That is important, right? So as we look into this from a deeper insight perspective, the insurance emphasizes Jesus' personal concern and attention to the believers in Pergamum. Despite their seemingly isolated and challenging situation, they are not forgotten. Jesus is aware of their struggle and is with them. Where Satan has his throne, right? I am with you even where Satan has his throne. This phrase describes Pergamum as a center of evil or a significant opposition to Christianity. And he refers to this as Satan's throne, symbolizing the significant spiritual adversity, possibly due to prevalent pagan worship and hostility towards Christians. 
This description serves to acknowledge the intensity of the spiritual battle and opposition faced by the believers in Bergenedom. It underscores the courage and resilience required to maintain their faith in such a hostile environment. The statement acknowledges the particular adversity faced by the Christians. Jesus is not oblivious to their flight. He recognizes the stronghold of evil uh, that is influencing them, and opposition in the area, affirming the believers' experiences and challenges. Now, metaphorical language, right? Where Satan has his throne adds depth to the understanding of the spiritual climate in Bergenedom. It effectively conveys the dominance of hostile forces against the Christian faith, making the city a challenging place for believers to live and practice their faith. But you have the assurance of Christ's presence. Despite the uh, description of what's going on in Pergonidum as a place where Satan dwells, Jesus' statement, I know where you live, assures the believers of his presence and awareness. It conveys the message that they are not alone in their struggle. Jesus is with them, knowing their situation intimately. In essence, the phrase, I know where you live, uh, where Satan has his throne, serves to affirm the challenges faced by the Christians in Pergonidum, while providing assurances of Jesus' awareness and presence with them in their adversity. It acknowledges the significant spiritual opposition in the city, highlighting the believer's courage and resilience and maintaining their faith amidst such hostility. Yet, you remain true to my name. Despite the challenges this church is facing, that the Christians in Pergamum have remained faithful. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Antipas, a faithful believer, was martyred in Pergamum. Yet the church did not renounce their faith. Now, not much is really known about Antipas or his martyrdom, but the reference to Antipas in Revelation serves as a uh, condemnation of their faithfulness and call to other believers in Pergamum to remain steadfast in their faith, despite the hostile environment in which they find themselves. I did find a reference to Antipas online. The source can be believed where Antipas was reputed to be a bishop of the Christian church at Pergamos. And there he was martyred for his faith because of his consistent faithful witness in the face of all the satanic evil present there. One of the quotes associated with him was when Antipas was advised, Antipas, the whole world is against you. And he simply said, then I guess I'm against the whole world. Antipas was supposedly roasted alive in the hollowed out life-size bowl, which had a bon you know, bonfire under its belly because Antipas refused to renounce his faith in Christ Jesus. May we all be that faithful and that strong um, if we find ourselves in that situation. Now, verses 14 and 15. Christ addresses the church, bringing attention to some internal issues concerning certain beliefs and behaviors within the community. He highlights their divergent past, which align with the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, both seen as errant harmful directions that some members of the church have taken. He goes, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Meaning, Christ opens this section with an expression of disapproval regarding specific practices within the church. His words set the stage for the issues he is about to address. This phrase also underscores the seriousness with which Christ views the matters at hand. It indicates that despite whatever commendable attributes the church may possess, these issues cannot be overlooked and need rectification. Now, the next thing he writes right, is, There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam. You ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Christ points out that some church members are following the teachings of Balaam. This adherence has led them into adultery and immoral behaviors as symbolized by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and engaging in sexual immorality. 
This reference to the teaching of Balaam highlights the dangerous allure and false and misleading doctrines that can lead believers astray, resulting in actions contrary to Christian principles and teachings. Next he goes, likewise, you have also, you have those who also hold the, to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Meaning in the same vein, Christ notes that some members of the church are aligning themselves with the teachings of the Nicolaitans, another group associated with heretical beliefs and practices. This passage further underscores the diversity of false teachings that have infiltrated the church, emphasizing the importance of discernment and adherence to true Christian doctrine. We're going to recognize of the internal issues, right? The verse is highly Christ's recognition of the eternal issues within the church. He is not only concerned about external threats, but also the internal integrity and the doctrinal purity of the church. Specific errant teachings. By naming the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, Christ provides a clear and ambiguous identification of the false doctrines, causing discord and leading members astray within the church. This clarity is essential for addressing and rectifying the issue. And then a call for correction. Christ's words act as a call for correction and realignment within the church. He brings attention to the errant paths some have taken, urging a return to the true and wholesome teachings of our Christian faith. Now let's back up a little bit, right? I just wanted to mention who the Balaam and Nicolaitans are. Now, Balaam, a figure from the book of Numbers, emerges as a non-Israelite prophet beckoned by Balak, the Moabite king, to curse the Israelites and route to the promised land. Despite his internal readiness, God's intervention transforms Balaam's curse into a blessing for the Israelites. Confounding block, right? This narrative uh, in Numbers chapter 22, verses 21 uh, through 35, presents a vivid scene where Balaam's donkey, seeing an angel blocking the path, diverts the route twice, right? Three times, earning Balaam's error and beatings each time. The donkey, miraculously granted speech, questions Balaam's actions, leading to divine revelation. Blom's eyes are open to the angel's presence, who confirms the donkey's life-saving actions and re-emphasizes God's directive to Blom to utter only divinely sanctioned words. The story underscores multiple lessons, highlighting God's unyielding sovereignty, his ability to utilize any means of communication, and the, essential, uh, the essentiality of the spiritual discernment to comprehend God's will and direction. The New Testament further illuminates Blom's historical and moral significance. The book of Revelations, chapter 2, verse 14, critiques Balaam for instructing Balak to allure the Israelites into his sinful actions, such as consuming food offered to idols and engaging in sexual moralities. These acts symbolize a deviation from God's path, um, epitomizing the pearl of leading others astray from divine righteousness and truth. This recounting the New Testament solidifies Balaam's lasting legacy as a warning within the early Christian church, reminding believers of the serious repercussions of promoting and indulging in sinful conduct, and emphasizing the importance and adherence to God's unending uh, guidance and wisdom. Now, the Nicolaitans were a heretical sect uh, mentioned in the book of Revelations. Uh, the detail of their beliefs and practices are not extensively documented in the Bible. Much of what is known about them comes from early Christian writers. The Nicolaitans are generally believed to have held uh, views suggesting that you know Christians were not bound by traditional moral laws and could freely participate in pagan practices and immorality without harming their faith. Now, as we get back on track, right, in essence, verses 14 and 50 from the book of Revelations are Christ's clear and direct address to the church regarding internal doctrine and behavioral issues. He identifies specific false teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans that some members have followed, meaning the adultery and immorality. 
passages emphasize the necessity for doctrinal clarity, moral integrity, and the rejection of teachings that deviate from the foundational principles of Christianity. Verse 16, Repent therefore. Christ calls the church to repent of these sins and stop these sinful practices. Otherwise I soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Meaning if they do not repent, Christ warns of coming judgment, using the metaphor of a sword from his mouth, symbolizing the power of his word. Now, in essence, this passage addresses the church in Pergonidum, acknowledging their faithfulness in difficult circumstances, while also pointing out their tolerance of false and heretical teachings leading to adultery and immorality. Christ calls them to repent with a warning of judgment and provides promise of spiritual sustenance and spatial relationship with him for those who overcome and remain faithful. This message highlights the importance of doctrinal purity, repentance, and continual faithfulness amidst external pressures and internal corruption. All right, so the next church John writes a letter to is the church of Thrasha. Verses 18 and 19, introduction and condemnation, right? These are the words of the Son of God. Jesus introduces himself again with significant imagery, reflecting his divine authority and penetrating insight. This introduction underscores Christ's authority and his ability to see the true state of the church, the eyes like blazing fire. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love, and your faith, and your service and perseverance. Christ acknowledges the positive impacts of the church in Thracia, including their deeds, love, faith, service, and perseverance. Now, despite these uh, these issues, the church has commendable qualities and works that have not gone unnoticed. But there's a big one, right? Verses 20 through 22, or 23. Rebuke for tolerating Jezebel. He says, you tolerate the woman named Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Now, let's talk about the historical background, right? Biblical Jezebel. The name Jezebel originates from the Old Testament Queen Jezebel, wife of King Ahab, known for leading Israel into idolatry and immorality. She was a staunch worshiper of Baal and notoriously uh, antistic towards the prophets of Yehovah. She symbolizes manipulation, deception, and seduction. Uh, for context, right, in Revelations, the name Jezebel in Revelations is most likely symbolic, referring to a woman in the church of Therasha who is leading Christians astray. Like her Old Testament namesake, the Jezebel uh, is described as a false prophet, teaching and seducing God's servants uh, to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. Next, he says, verse 20, you tolerate the woman named Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. The church in Thrasha is tolerating a woman referred to as Jezebel, who is proclaiming herself a prophet and leading people to sinful practices. Jezebel symbolizes false teachings and deceptive influence within the church, leading people away from the truth of faith and the sin of adultery. So what is the impact on the church, right? The church's willingness to tolerate Jezebel's false teachings demonstrates a significant lapse in discernment and spiritual integrity. The teachings and practices promoted by Jezebel are corrupting the church, leading members into sin and away from genuine faith. Insight into the rebuke, right? Urgency of correction. Jesus' strong rebuke emphasizes the urgency for the church to correct this issue, highlighting the seriousness of allowing such deception to continue. Then call to action. The church is called to seize tolerating the false teachings and to address the immoral and idolatrous behavior that have infiltrated their community. What we see in Revelations chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, Jezebel serves as a symbol for an individuals or teachings that lead the community astray in immorality or adultery. 
By using the name Jezebel, the text invokes a notorious Old Testament figure known for similar acts of deception and seduction. The search of Thrasha, tolerance of such destructive influence, reflects a grave issue, and the stern rebuke from Jesus underscores the critical need for immediate correction, calling the community back to truth, righteousness, and genuine faith. Verses 21 through 23, I have given her time to repent. I will strike her children dead. Strong message. Uh, in this verse, 21 through 23 in Revelations 2, the text communicates a strong and direct warning and judgment against the figure referred to as Jezebel and her followers. So let's break this down. These verses, uh, to better understand their significance. I have given her time to repent. The reference to time given to repentance highlights God's patience and mercy. Despite her wrongdoing, Jezebel is offered an opportunity for redemption. But refusal to repent, right? Despite this opportunity that Christ has given him, her refusal to repent demonstrates a hardened resistance to correction and a deliberate choice to continue in her destructive path. Verse 22, so I'll cast her on a bed of suffering. What means is imminent judgment. A severe judgment is declared, symbolizing as a bed of summary. The imagery signifies the intense tribulation that awaits Jezebel as a consequence for her unrepented sin. And then conditional mercy. Like we want to note here the conditional clause. The punishment can be averted if they repent of her ways. This reaffirms God's enduring mercy even in the pronouncement of justice. I will strike her children dead. The judgment extends to her children, possibly referring to Jezebel's followers or those influenced by her teachings. The verse concludes with the assertion of Christ's authority to search the hearts and minds and repay individuals accordingly, reinforcing his role as an ultimate judge. Now, I want to talk about the emphasis on repentance, right? Divine mercy. Despite the grave errors and sins committed by Jezebel and her followers, the window for repentance is kept open. This reflects the God's desire for all to turn away from sin and choose the path of righteousness. Human free will, right? Continuous choice of Jezebel and her followers to ignore this chance underscores human free will and the responsibility that comes with it. And then when you ignore it, here comes severe judgment consequences for their resistance. The pronounced judgment, including intense suffering and death, emphasize the seriousness of resisting repentance and persisting in sin. Now, we talk about the warning of the church, right? The severity of the judgment serves as a stark warning to the church community, underlying the critical importance of rejecting false teachings and immoral practices. And we talk about practical application, right? Vigilance against false teachings. The passage underscores the importance for individual believers and church community to remain vigilant against false teachings and practices that can lead them astray. And the value of repentance, right? The offered opportunity to repent highlights the significance in the Christian faith, reminding believers of God's mercy and the need to turn away from their sin. So verses 21 through 23 in Revelations 2 firmly spotlights the profound consequences of persistence in sin and the rejection of the opportunity to repent. Despite God's mercy and the chance given for transformation, the refusal by Jezebel and her followers to change their ways leads to severe judgment. The passage stands as a solemn reminder to all believers of the critical importance of vigilance, the rejection of false teachings, and the embracing of repentance as a pathway back to the righteousness and divine favor. He has some words to the faithful in Thrasher, right? Verses 24 through 25. To you who do not hold to her teachings, I will not oppose any other burden on you. 
Christ addresses those in Thrasha who have not followed Jezebel's teachings, assuring them of no further burden. This section offers encouragement and assurance to the faithful, acknowledging their stand against the false teachings. Verses 26 through 29, promise to be victorious. To the one who is victorious, I will give authority over the nations. The promise of authority and victory is given to those who overcome and remain faithful to Christ's will. Christ's promise emphasizes the rewards of faithfulness and steadfastness in the face of deception and false teachings. Verses 28 and 29, I will also give that one the morning star. Jesus promises to grant the morning star to the victors, a symbol of hope, brightness, and possibly his own presence. The gift of the morning star represents the ultimate reward and honor for those who overcome and remain faithful. In essence, the letter to the church of Theresia offers a balanced view of condemnation and rebuke, highlighting the significant issues of tolerating false teachings and immorality, while also acknowledging the positive attributes of love, service, and faithfulness within the community. Christ's words serve as a serious warning against complacency and tolerance of false doctrines and immoral practices, emphasizing the importance of discernment, repentance, and adherence to true Christian teachings. The assurance of no added burden to the faithful and the promise of the morning star to the victors conveys hope and encouragement for those who remain steadfast in their commitment to truth and righteousness. Now, Revelations chapter 2 navigates the spiritual terrain of the Christian churches, confronting issues of faith, doctrine, discipline within the message from Jesus himself. In this illuminating chapter, four distinct churches in the cities of Ephesia, Smyrna, Pergam, and Thrasha are addressed, each facing its unique challenges and circumstances. These same lessons are deeply relevant and can be applied across the world today as a potent warning from God to avoid these traps that can undermine spiritual integrity. So let's recap what we're talking about, right? Ephesia. The loveless church. The church of Ephesians, while steadfast and resistant to evil, is criticized for abandoning its initial love and passion for Christ and the gospel. This condemnation underscores the critical importance of maintaining not just doctrinal correctness, but also passionate love for God in today's churches. Maintaining love and devotion in our journey of faith is essential today as it's ever been, ensuring that vibrancy and depth of spiritual life is of the utmost importance. Smyrna, the persecuted church. Uh, this situation of the believers in Smyrna marries the persecution many experience today. Despite their afflictions and poverty, their spiritual wealth is acknowledged by Jesus, offering comfort and assurance of eternal reward. This message continues to bring hope to modern-day believers facing persecution, affirming their steadfast faith amidst trials. In Pergnidum, right, the compromised church. In Pergnidum, the church's physical location is described as where Satan has his throne suggesting a powerful presence of evil or opposition. The warning against succumbing to false teachings and immoral practices is a timely reminder for today's churches to guard against similar compromise that can erode the spiritual foundation. Therasha, right, the tolerant church. Therasha's rebuke for tolerating the false prophets of Jezebel, leading congregants into immorality and idolatry, highlights the grave consequences of permitting false teachings within the church. This stands as a clear warning to contemporary churches to be vigilant against false prophets and teachings that can lead believers astray. 
We talk about the overall theme, right? The universal theme of repentance, steadfastness, and rejection of false teachings in Revelations chapter 2 are as relevant today as in ancient times. Today's churches are encouraged to heed these timeless principles, ensuring the adherence to truth and righteousness in the midst of contemporary challenges. And then promises and warnings. Jesus promises uh, of rewards for those who remain faithful, and his warnings against spiritual compromise resonate powerfully for today's believers. It underscores the divine expectation for churches and believers to steadfastly uphold truth, righteousness, and unwavering devotion to God's commands in the modern world. Right? In conclusion, Revelations chapter 2 stands as a timeless beacon for churches and believers worldwide. It serves as a spiritual compass, steering the contemporary followers of Christ to the path of truth, righteousness, and wavering fidelity to the gospel. Despite the evolving challenges and internal struggles the churches uh, today face or encounter, the messages from this chapter persist in inspiring believers to reflect, repent, and realign with the uncompromising and eternal truths of the Christian faith. So today, right, as we delve deeply into the chapter of the Bible, let our hearts be turned to the resounding echoes of divine truth and hope that transcends the ages and whispers fervently to our spirits even today. In the swirling torments of time marked by uncertainty and confusion and the shadows of persecution, let us anchor ourselves in the unshakable reality of Christ's sovereignty. He reigns supreme, his authority unyielding, and his love unfailing. Remember, he is the triumphant king who holds the keys to life and death, whose resurrection power pulses in our veins of creation, promising us victory over the grave and a gift of eternal life. As we tread these pages, right, the unfold divisions granted to John on the rugged terrains of the island of Patmos, let us not forget the context of these revelations. Patmos, a place of isolation, exile, mirrors the depths and the despair and abandonment. Yet it is here, amid the barren landscape, that the radiant light of God's presence pierces the veil of darkness, illuminating the path of hope, assurance, and eternal promises. He said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. In face of towering empires and oppressive rulers, John the Apostle of Love received the unyielding words of Christ, a message of flame with resolute courage and unyielding victory. These words breathed life and resilience into the fledging Christian community, battered by the attempts and persecutions of fear. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written, because the time is near. Let this blessing permeate over your very beings, infusing you with strength and fortitude as we navigate the pathways of our lives. May the profound words and visions of revelations fill our spirits of unwavering assurance of Christ's ultimate victory and eternal reign. In the mosaic of divine revelations, may we glimpse the celestial tapestry of God's unending love and faithfulness. Now as we close this reflection, let us carry forth the flame of hope ignited by the pleasant vision of John, allowing its light to guide our steps, dispel our fears, and deepen our wavering allegiance to our risen Lord. I praise that our hearts may be ever strengthened, our spirits ever emboldened, and our lives ever anchored in the boundless ocean of God's eternal promises. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I say amen. I want to close today with a simple prayer. Please close your eyes and bow your head with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, 
and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. Remember, saying this prayer or any other prayer will not save you by itself. It is the genuine faith and conviction in your heart that God cares about you. The words are simply a way for you to express your faith and commitment to God. The true salvation experience comes from truly believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, feeling remorse for your sins, and living a life that shows commitment to the followings and teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to thank you for sharing your time with me today. If you found value in this content, I invite you to click the subscribe button. Over the next few weeks, our journey will further unfold into the chapters of Revelation. Your insights are important to me. If there's anything you disagree with or would like to share feedback on, please don't hesitate to leave a comment. In future episodes, I plan to review comments on the podcast because engaging discussion often leads to deeper understanding. And perhaps God has granted you insights into his divine promises that could enlighten us all. Wishing you a blessed and joyful week ahead.